Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Seth Abramovich here, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And Chip Pope, podcaster at It Happened in Hollywood. (laughs) Chip, I, I think this week's guest is someone who i don't know how you felt about him in childhood but he he made a big impression on me from a young age uh-huh and uh, he always fascinated me yes and that's what's cool about this show is that we can actually get up close and personal with these people that were so much larger than life exactly and this guy is very interesting because he was a hollywood it boy for a while he was but uh he always did everything on his own terms so he really Seems like the kind of guy who does what he's going to do more than he needs Hollywood. And so, you know, that can be some ups and downs, and we'll go through those of his life. And I was very pleasantly surprised to see what a great raconteur he is. Amazing. Great detail. Great storytelling. You're really in for a treat. And that's what's up this week on It Happened in Hollywood. So it's 1979. Disco is raging and Hollywood is throbbing with excess and fun and good times. Cocaine. Beautiful people. One of our favorite periods to return to. And uh, amid all this, a very, very handsome guy is making his way through Hollywood. His name is Harry Hamlin. Can we say still very handsome? I mean, I don't want to be like one of those puff pieces that gushes over somebody but uh should we admit that he came to the interview after having spent several hours at the hair salon yeah i think we should (laughs) (laughs) it showed (laughs) he he had been there for several hours but he looked great uh you know i've always been a huge harry hamlin fan reaching all the way back to clash of the titans right uh, which just was a big deal to me as a kid and apparently it came out on the same day as raiders of the lost ark which i didn't remember Right, yes. One of those movies got overshadowed. <laughs> but not one. to me. I liked Clash of the Titans. I liked all the special effects and the Medusa and the little wind-up uh, owl. And, yes. Um, I loved all of it. And, and I especially loved Harry Hamlin. He just was an impressive man to me. And uh, I was uh, very impressed with him as a child. And then, of course, he went on 
to become a big sex symbol on TV in L.A. law, mm-hmm. which was required viewing at our house. And um, now he's known to a whole nother group of people. Right. As he put it, uh, he's Mr. Lisa Rinna. To me, the least interesting um, <laughs> right. chapter well, of, sure. of yeah. his own career. But he was also amazing in Mad Men and stuff. And um, But um, what we're going to focus on in this episode is really uh, when he launched. And he did back-to-back. He did Clash of the Titans, which did pretty well. It didn't make him a superstar, but it, it was well-received considering it was up against Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then he followed it up with Making Love. Wow. Now, Making Love that. was the... Two movies that couldn't be any more different. Couldn't right? be more different. One is like a kind of youth-oriented blockbuster special effects movie with Ray Harryhausen stop-motion animation. The other is a very adult drama, a, a, a sort of love triangle between a, a married straight couple and then a guy comes into the picture. That's Harry Hamlin, kind of pulls the husband away. Kate Jackson is the wife and Michael Antkeen from... Twin Peaks is the husband, and uh, it's a very frank, unapologetic, and um, nuanced depiction of gay life. In the early 80s. In the early 80s. This is pre-AIDS. So there's none of that where they inevitably, you know, have this, you know, dramatic uh, decline in health. It's just about their sex lives and their love lives. Very bold for a studio movie. Yeah, it was Fox, the first movie of its kind from a studio, and it pretty much ended his career. But um, <laughs> wow! Spoiler alert. <laughs> let's uh, let's go backwards. Let's go back to to Harry Hamlin and where he was when Clash of the Titans came into his life. In 1978 79, I had been represented by Sue Mengers, who was a big uh, mega agent back in the 70s, and I was the sort of youngest, uh, least established client that she had. And she had wanted me to sign a big deal with Warner Brothers. They offered me what was called the Clint in those days, which was Clint Eastwood had signed a contract like this, and he was the last person who had had this contract. It was a three-picture deal uh, with multiple options. Like It was all the bells and whistles of a major motion picture contract. And I turned it down. I mean, I actually, I, I kind of negotiated it right up to the day of the signing. And uh, I went to Warner Brothers and went into the president of the of the studio's office um his name was uh, robert shapiro no relation but he and the, and the warner Bros. had offered me this huge contract and uh, i walked into the office and all the belt the big suits were there and uh, my agents were there uh, sue was not there sue mangus wasn't there for some reason but i knew what movies they had wanted me to do and I had, I had a, a kind of mole on the inside of Warner Brothers who'd give me the scripts. And, uh, and one of them was called Greystoke, um, which right. uh, was about Tarzan. And they wanted me to be naked swinging through the trees for uh, the first 45 minutes of the, of the film. And the other one was called First Blood. And they wanted me to be naked on a motorcycle for the first half an hour of the movie. Um, they knew that I had done Equus up in San Francisco, where I had to be fully naked on stage, fully frontally nude naked. So they thought, well, here's a guy who doesn't mind dangling his thing around. So, <laughs> so maybe you know he'd be the guy for these two projects. Um, and I just didn't. I didn't like the scripts. As a matter of fact, Robert Town had been on. Uh, had written. Greystoke, and he'd taken his name off of the script. I guess at some point he decided he didn't like it. But so, in halfway through the meeting, when I was supposed to sign this big contract, I just up and left and said, "I'm not signing it." And uh, and one of the guy, Robert Shapiro, turned to me, and goes, "You're not signing the contract." I said, "Well, I don't, I don't feel like it." And uh, he said, "Well, okay. Well, um, 
we we like you enough as an actor that with or without a contract, we will continue to work with you. I walked off that lot and didn't step foot on the Warner Brothers lot for 13 years hmm. after that. Oh. Um, so they were mad. So, well, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, they had all they had all kinds of ads out for Academy Awards for this movie I'd done, movie, movie, and then, so the Hollywood Reporter had the back page. We had my picture on it and stuff. And as soon as I walked out, all those ads disappeared. You know, they oh, just wow. they pulled the campaign. You got what he was getting at with his Robert Shapiro, no relation? Well, Robert Shapiro was the lawyer on the O.J. Simpson uh, defense team, right? Right, okay. So it would be weird, though, if there was somebody related to Robert Shapiro, named Robert Shapiro, <laughs> that was not a lawyer. <laughs> but there but there were two Robert Shapiro lawyers working in Hollywood at the same time. But That's insane. There might be more than two. There could be. But uh, moving on, so here you have Harry Hamlin in, in one of many instances you'll see where things were all lined up for him they were ready to make him the clint <laughs> and right. um and he didn't play ball so easily he he had very specific he was highly educated and he had a uh, strong um instincts and if they didn't if they rubbed him the wrong way he would just not hesitate to say no and then be locked off of the the lot for 13 years right and you got to admire a guy like that because in current hollywood a guy that would look like that, it would just all be about, what, help me, what can you do for me? You know, people would do anything, I think. I, li I like his integrity. Yeah, that was back in the time when selling out was a thing. That doesn't exist anymore. Right. All right, so Sue Mengers, who is a legend, uh, she was played by Bette Midler on Broadway in a play. You know, she was not meshing too well with him. They didn't have the same vision for his career. And uh, he did something you didn't do to Sue Mengers back in those days. And that's, he uh, fired her. I had to leave Sue Mengers uh, not long after that because she had wanted me to do a movie that her husband had written, which was horrible. And uh, she was insisting that I do this movie. And I said, no, I can't do that movie. And I finally walked into her office and, um, and I, I said sat down across from her and I said, Sue, you know, I, I don't know how to say this, but I'm just going to say it. I said, I'm leaving. And she, leaving what? I, she said, and I said, I'm leaving, I'm moving on to another agency. I, I, I can't, this is not working out because the karma here just isn't right. And she said, karma, karma, what the F is karma? <laughs> and she, she punched it into her phone to her assistant and she said to her assistant, Michael, Get my psychiatrist up here right now. I need, I need him here in 10 minutes. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I didn't wait around 10 minutes for this shrink to get there. I, I haven't left. Um, so, uh, and I think I don't know if, if I was the first and only person who ever left her, but the karma was definitely not working. We were just oil and water, she and I. So there he, he left her. He left Warner Brothers. He's, he's burning bridges left, right, and center. But, you know, just doing it in style, you know? I he feel is. like he just does that by walking along the beach without uh, any shoes on in, a, in <laughs> linen, you know? It's just like, yeah, I'll leave them. I'll leave her. <laughs> I just feel like, because he just has that attitude. He's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. You look at him in 1981, he's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, he was. He actually had two projects that he had to choose from, each starring a legendary British actor. Crazy. In 1978, when uh, I was offered a movie called Tristan and His Salt that Richard Burton was doing. And uh, I, I thought this is great because I'm a classically trained actor and Tristan and His Salt is a great legendary story. And, 
and Kate Mulgrew was going to play Assault, and Kate and I met. We talked about it. You know, and this was going to be Richard Burton, who's one of my heroes, and one of the reasons why I'm an actor was because of Richard Burton. That's a great story too. But um, I was set to do this movie. I was so jazzed to be working with Richard Burton, and then I got a call about there was this movie with another one of my heroes, Laurence Olivier, and they wanted to meet me on that. And I thought, well. I don't know. I kind of really liked the script of Tristan and Assault. It was a beautiful love story. It was uh, well written. The dialogue was great, you know. And, and I thought, well, I'll do Tristan and Assault, but I'll just go in and meet them. You know, just be nice. Go to MGM, and I'll meet the guys at MGM about this Clash of the Titans movie. I didn't like the title. I went in and I met with them, and and before I left the meeting, they were taking Polaroids of me and telling the wardrobe department to come up and start doing fittings. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh. Uh, I was immediately cast in that movie, and uh, I had to make this decision. Like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to do Richard Burton or Laurence Olivier? I then read the script for Clash of the Titans, and, uh, ooh. (laughs) 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 That movie, well, the movie, you know, was, uh, you know, sort of typical Charles Schneer, Ray Harryhausen film, and uh, it had been written by Beverly Cross, who was at the time married to Maggie Smith. So Maggie Smith, Beverly, had called on, upon Maggie to see if she could get some of her friends to join on the, in the cast. So she called up Claire Bloom and she called up Larry. <laughs> Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> so Larry. You call him Larry. <laughs> my, husband, my husband wants uh, you know, uh, to do this movie and the only way we're going to get amazed is we get people like you behind it. And so the movie got a green light. And I was down, I went down to Mexico with both scripts. I went to this little fishing village that I would go to when I was preparing for movies. And I had the Tristan and Assault script in one hand and the Clash of the Titans script in the other. And I, and I had my journal with me as well. And I have the journal entries still. Like, like, oh, my God. Can I really do this movie, this Clash of the Titans movie? Oh, my God. But it's Laurence Olivier. And, and I really want to meet Laurence Olivier more than I want to meet Richard Burton. So I did that. I made the, made the choice to do Clash of the Titans. There he is, back on a, on a beach making life decisions, little Mexican fishing village where he prepares for all his roles. (laughs) I mean, yeah, what a life this guy has. Can I get in a time machine and live this guy's life? No kidding. I want to choose between Larry, (laughs) a.k.a. Laurence Olivier, and old Dick Burton, and I work with both of them. It's so crazy. Also, he's talking about other stuff you don't hear about in other Hollywood podcasts probably, but when a spouse wants you to do something. You know, that's happened two times so far in his stories. That's true. Sue Menger's husband wants to write this thing, and, you know, Maggie Smith's husband needs to get this made. Yeah, so you have these power women getting their husband's work. Yeah, I I love that. (laughs) Because you always hear about, well, the husband, she got the calls of the husband. So, you know, it's cool to see these. These women going, yeah, I got to get this dude off my back, get this movie made. And you heard right. That's, he's referring to Dame Maggie Smith, Downton Abbey fame, uh, and Harry Potter. But she's playing one of the, uh, the gods in this movie. Do you remember <laughs> you which check one? this out. <laughs> she was like Artemis? No, I don't it's, remember. I, she's Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime? No. But um, he and uh, Olivier actually grew quite close on the set of this movie that Turns out was um, a paycheck movie for both of them. But what I thought was interesting is, you know, you think of Lawrence Olivier as the greatest actor that ever lived, or a lot of people do, but he wasn't above doing something that he felt was beneath him. And I think they yeah. bonded over that fact. Right, right. Harry and Larry. <laughs> this fall on NBC. 
I got to know Olivier pretty well um, when during the rehearsal process. And of course, being a young actor, I wanted to find out all of his secrets, you know. So I would pull him aside and I would say, excuse me, uh, Lord Olivier. And he'd say, oh, my boy, please don't call me Lord Olivier. It's Larry. It's Larry. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I, I would ask him what his secrets were, et cetera. And then his 70th birthday happened while we were on the set. And we all got him a birth, birthday cake and we cut the cake. Oh, I, it was, we had a, a nice party. And for his birthday, I gave him a, a copy of Pachelbel's Canon in D Major, which is a piece of music that I had fallen in love with, but was just being rediscovered at that moment in the 70s. And he'd never heard it before. And he took it home and he listened to it and he just fell in love with it. And he wrote me a beautiful letter, a uh, thank you letter, like two or three page long letter. And this, the letter started off with uh, my newest and dearest friend. And he went on to apologize for being in the movie because he knew how much I admired him and his work and how deeply I admired his work. And he also kind of knew what a silly movie this was that he was in. So he was apologizing, saying, well, you know, I'm only doing this movie because I have so many mouths to feed. I wish I had the letter with me. I could read it word for word because it's really cool. But he was basically apologizing for being in the movie that I was the star of. And uh, I've always wondered whether that was a letter that I want to show people or whether I want to hide in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure. So he's he's making the film, and um, what's interesting is that one of the other actors in the film who plays uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, oh. is Ursula Andress, the first Bond girl, right. Dr. No. And, uh, well, they had an interesting sort of meeting and subsequent entanglement, let's call it. And once again, Harry Hamlin, master storyteller, will let him relay this tale. And he begins it with a very reasonable question. I ask myself, why did my parents give me a subscription to Playboy when I was 11? Oh, good Lord. A five-year-long subscription to Playboy. I had never asked for such a thing, but it just happened to be under the Christmas tree on my, when I was 11 years old. Um, so I had seen... I'd, I'd, I had seen Dr. No, I think, when I was a kid, and I had seen pictures of Ursula in Playboy. And for some reason, the very first dinner that we ever had together in London when I got there, when the cast and crew got together for a big dinner, I was placed next to Ursula. You know, 30 people at a table, but I was placed next to Ursula, right? Mm. So I, being, you know, young and, and impressionable, but not having ever found her to be particularly attractive, I still was in awe of this movie star that I was sitting next to, and I didn't know quite what to say, and I'm sure I put my foot in my mouth many times. And then that, that was it. Um, I didn't see her again. She shot on a different soundstage with the gods and goddesses and all that. And then when I got to Rome, I think maybe two or three weeks later, we were shooting in Italy, and I was staying at the Hotel de la Ville, which is on the Via Sistina. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, on a Sunday morning, so it was after Saturday night, no work that day, the phone rings in my hotel room. And I pick it up, and I'm groggy, and I hear this voice. Harry, it's Ursula. <laughs> I had a dream about you. I live right down the street on Via Sistina. Um, would you like to go to the flea market in the morning and have breakfast? Oh, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, fine, you know, and, and so we met up the next day, and and we went to the flea market and had breakfast, and she had a blue, a bright metallic blue dune buggy that she drove around Rome, and, you know, of course, she wanted to be very low-key, right? Uh, so, uh, 
So wow. we hopped in this dune buggy, and, and you know, of course, everywhere that dune buggy went, went it attracted a crowd, and that's, of course, what she wanted. And we, we went around town that day, and then she invited me to her apartment for dinner that night, and she cooked. She's a fabulous cook, and uh, cooked dinner, and um, I think maybe two months later, we were going down the Nile in Egypt, and... Uh, after we'd gone to the Cairo Film Festival when she discovered that she was with child. Wow. And that's so, your son? My son, Dimitri, yeah. Wow. A fabulous, my beautiful boy. I'm very did, proud did, of him. You never married? or? No, I, I did ask her, and she, it, there was some tax complication for her. <laughs> Why she said no? Exactly. Mm. <clears throat> She'd break this to you in the dune buggy? <laughs> no, but she's lovely, and, and, and I still talk to her quite often. Oh, Harry. <laughs> what a life. I know. By now, if you've listened to any of this and you're not jealous of Harry Hamlin, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Because this guy... I should also how to live. say that his uh, voices, his impressions are really great. I yes. loved all the ones, all his accents. And they, uh, I think Ronan Farrow now has some competition on the um, accent front. Oh, yeah. If, I mean, if you've listened to the Catch and Kill on audiobook, Ronan Farrow does Rosie Perez and other he does? odd accents. Yes. I haven't heard. He's like, <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting. Mookie, why you got to do the... I mean, he's doing that? Yes. That's crazy. <laughs> But okay, so we, we got a little bit off track, but uh, so they're still making Clash of the Titans. He's making other things. And uh, he's not getting along so well with the producers, Ray Harryhausen, the legendary stop motion um, effects guy. You'd think, you know, he'd be their, their golden boy, but uh, he's, he's always quite stubborn. And so here he explains uh, where things started to fall apart with his relationships on the film. A couple of things happened on the set. There's a scene in, in, in the movie that is somewhat iconic, and it's when Perseus cuts the head off of Medusa. Amazing sequence. That he's been given by uh, Zeus, right? And I, my, well, I went to Yale, and I studied uh, my degrees in psychology, and my degrees in Jungian psychology, and Joseph Campbell, who was, was the great mythologist, he uh, you know, had been a hero of mine, Joseph Campbell, and, and my professor, Jungian professor at Yale, was head of the Jungian Institute. And I did my thesis on myth and drama. So I knew very well what the myth was. I knew very well, and we, we mangle the myth in a few places, but this was one place where the myth was, where we were true to the actual myth, where Zeus does give Perseus these gifts, and one of them being a magical sword. And, and he does cut the head off of Medusa by using the sword as a mirror, or the shield as a mirror, so he doesn't have to look into her eyes, and he cuts her head off, because if he looked into her eyes, he'd be turned to stone. So that's all fine and good. We get to Malta, where we're shooting this sequence, uh, the, the Medusa beheading sequence, and we're shooting outside of Valletta in a, in a forested area where there's a, a warehouse that they've converted into the set. And I'm in a trailer. It's one of those trailers that gets pulled. It's an actual trailer. It gets pulled along behind a truck. One of those round things, you know, with a door and the side of it. So I get there in the morning, and, and the PA comes over, and he says, oh, I, there's been a change. We got a telex overnight that you can't cut Medusa's head off with the sword anymore because that will get an X rating for violence in 
in, among for kids in England. Apparently, you could get an X rating for violence in England, and they, they thought, well, if, if they get this X rating for violence because of the sword and the head and all that, they'd, they'd, millions of dollars they would lose because there would be an entire segment of the audience who couldn't go to see the movie. So they said, uh, they said, yeah, um, you can't cut her head off with a sword anymore. And I, I kind of scratched my head, and I said, well, what? Her head's got to come off. That's the whole story, right? <laughs> and they said, "Oh yeah, we got it all figured out. You're going to take your your shield, right? And without looking at her, you're going to throw your shield like a frisbee, and it's going to hit the wall. And inadvertently, your shield is going to slice her head off." I thought about that. I tried to visualize that for a minute, and I said, "Well, okay, but you're just going to have to find somebody else to finish the movie because I quit." <laughs> and I went into my trailer and I closed the door and it was a really hot day in the summer and they unplugged all the electricity to the trailer and the and and it became the standoff. Now this is before cell phones and we were far off in the woods so they had to get in a car and drive to the nearest payphone to to call London to tell them that their their actor was being recalcitrant and was quitting the movie. And I, and I was like dead set. I was going to fly home. I was going to take a taxi, find the, get a ride into town, get on a plane and go home. I said, I'm not finishing this movie if I can't cut her head off with the sword. And they, they, sent, they started sending emissaries into my hot dressing room. They sent like the director of photography came in to try and convince me, you know, we're losing the day and come on, you got to do this. And every time they sent somebody in, by the time they came out, they were on my side. So, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, so finally, like at about three thirty in the afternoon, like now the director was now on my side and, but Ray Harryhausen was not because Ray, Ray was really into money. He wanted to make the most m money out of this as possible. And I was into making a great movie, and the two things with commerce and art were kind of clashing at that moment. That was a clash of the titans of that. <laughs> so, uh, so I finally won the battle. What could they do? I mean, either the actor was going to quit, and I was going to quit, uh, or they had to let me cut her head off with a sword. But by then, we'd used up most of the day, so they couldn't really, all the angles that they wanted to shoot of that scene, they didn't have time to shoot. So if you ever go back and look at the movie, you'll see that all they did I'm standing against a pillar, and they only had time to take to put the camera on sticks and move it five feet and then shoot some footage, then move it five feet and shoot some footage. That's how they built the tension, just by moving the camera closer and closer and closer to me until finally it was an extreme close-up on my eyes. And then, you know, I cut off nothing. There was nothing there. There was, right. no, there was no Medusa there. It was just air. So I, uh, I cut her head off uh, with a sword. And, you know... They were really, really mad at me for that. Um, and Ray Harryhausen didn't really talk to me for the rest of the movie, and Charles Schneer didn't talk to me for the rest of the movie. Bridges in Malta. <laughs> it's interesting because he realizes his own power that he has, even as a young man. And uh, if he doesn't like it, he's going to walk. In the people that we've interviewed on this show, it's always like directors that seems like they're going to quit and not do it. 
Right, the actors are never in the position of power. Yeah, they never seem like they have that same kind of conviction, not to knock actors. And if you've seen the movie, of course, the Medusa sequence is the most memorable sequence in the whole thing. So, good for him. Yeah. Now, not everything worked out for Harry in his life. He, I mean, yes, he, he does have a <laughs> charmed existence, but... Um, One he, bad thing happened? <laughs> well, he was up for Raiders, actually. He was up yeah. for oh, Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah. And as we all well know, he didn't get it and went to Harrison Ford. But his story of auditioning for Raiders was pretty amazing. Yeah. So let's take a little detour from Clash of the Titans to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Steven Spielberg had just created the Egg Company at Universal, um, and he'd built this new building that had an atrium in it with a tree in it and all that. It was like nobody had ever seen anything quite like this, but he had so much money, he could do anything he wanted. So I was called by my agent at the time, and I, it must have been Sue. It was either Sue or I went back to Susan Smith. It could have been either one of those uh, agents. And uh, I said, you know, Steven and Lucas would like to see you for this movie that they're doing together. Um, and they'd like you to go to the egg company at Universal, and, and they can't give you the script, but they'll give you some sides when you get there, and you, you know, you'll read a scene when you get there, and they're going to they're gonna pair you with somebody because they, they want to see your chemistry with another girl, right? So, I, okay. So I, I, I arrive at, at, um, at the egg company, I come in, and... Why do you call it the Egg Company? That's the name of his company. It was oh, it called is. the Egg Company before he created before Amblin. Amblin? Wow, yeah, okay. it was called I didn't the Egg know Company. That. So I was introduced to Stephanie Zimblist, Ephraim Zimblist's daughter, and she and I were paired together to to do the reading together. And Stephen was there, and Stephen, he was very gracious, and he said, uh, Stephanie and Harry, listen, uh, I, I'm very sorry, but uh, but George is going to be late. I'm terribly sorry about this, but I, I hope you have some time uh, this morning because George is going to be probably about an hour late. And um, and he said, listen, um, George loves chocolate cake. So I've built this kitchen here in, in the my new building, and it's got everything in it. And I, I hate to ask you to do this, but could you just wait for an hour till he gets here? And, and while you're waiting, could you bake him a chocolate cake? <laughs> And uh, and I go well. I didn't. I don't remember if it was his birthday or not, or why we were being asked to bake a chocolate cake. But he, then we were deposited in this immaculate kitchen that had you know everything was in in the cupboards. And Stephen said, "By the way, everything you need to make a chocolate cake is here." Um, and you know, and the egg I, company, were, of course. And he might have even preheated the oven first. I don't. I don't remember that. But but he then he walked out. And he just left, left us there. Just me and Stephanie in this room, this big island in the middle of the kitchen, and all these cupboards that were closed. And I said to Stephanie, "Have have you ever baked a chocolate cake?" <laughs> and she goes, "No." And I said, "Well, I've never baked a chocolate cake. How do you bake a chocolate cake?" You know. And and we started opening cupboards, and sure enough, one cupboard would have some flour, another one sugar, and then the refrigerator had milk and eggs, and you know there was an egg beater, and there was all the bowls and all this stuff. You know, I mean, it's like. Well, all the stuff was there, but there was no recipe, no recipe right? <laughs> so we were in there, you know, banging around, pulling stuff out of cupboards, like looking at boxes to see if there was a recipe anywhere, you know, and not knowing what we were doing. And uh, and, and we, I started talking about my friend Amy Irving, who was in New York doing a play at the time on Broadway. And our friend group that I was involved with was very close with Amy, and we were getting hints from Amy that, you know, she was a little upset by this guy who was stalking her 
this director, Steven Spielberg, who was coming to New York and like showing up at the stage door. And, and I'm telling this to Stephanie the whole time. Like, <laughs> and my friend, you know, Amy's like, she's not very happy with this guy because, you know, <laughs> he's like really kind of bugging her, you know, I'm going on and on about it, you know. And, and then finally the door opens and Lucas comes in with Spielberg and they say, oh, so sorry, you're late now. We never finished making a cake. So we then go in and we, we read a little couple of scenes from the, the script and, and we leave. And we didn't get the part, obviously. And this was 1978, mind you, okay? So VHS hadn't even been invented yet. You know, you couldn't go into a store and buy a video camera. The whole idea of videos being around were kind of like no one would ever think or imagine that a room had been completely bugged with video cameras and microphones to find out what our chemistry was like baking the cake. So... I can only conjecture this at this point because no one has ever proved it, but if George Lucas and Steven Spielberg weren't sitting in an office watching the entire thing, I would eat my shoes. <laughs> it has to be. As a result hey. of me bad-mouthing Steven around the whole Amy Irving thing, whom he later married but then divorced, I have never worked for Steven Spielberg, nor will I ever work for Steven, <laughs> Steven Spielberg. <laughs> wow. That's two two episodes in a row where we've had a guest who um, had not the most praiseful things to say about Steven Spielberg. So Clash of the Titans is released, and there was kind of a big buzz. You know, there, I remember going to see it as a kid. Kids were excited about seeing it and everything. Yeah. But, you know, it didn't do Raiders of Lost Ark numbers. That's for sure. So Harry Hamlin was offered all kinds of parts. Could probably do most any kind of thing he wanted to at this point. But... He's ever an iconoclast and a guy who kind of bucks what was expected of him. So he looks for some kind of smaller, more challenging movie to do. And he finds one. Arthur Hiller asked me to come in and meet him on Making Love. And apparently everyone in town had turned the movie down. They'd gone out to every major star and they'd all turned it down. Because at that time, the idea of that gay world and all that was still not accepted. Uh, it predates the advent of AIDS when I went in to meet with Arthur um, predates the advent of HIV. And I read this script and I said, wait a minute, this, this is exactly the kind of movie I'm looking for. I want to do something that's relevant and edgy, cutting edge. The first script I read was much edgier than the one we ended up shooting. The, the uh, studio began to get cold feet about the original script, which was really edgy and had like some phone sex in it. I mean, when I say phone sex, not the kind where you're talking on the phone, <laughs> but where you're using the phone. Okay. Oh, okay. wow. Um, wow. Now the mind wait, reels. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> between the two guys or Kay Jackson? No, <laughs> between, it, was, it was at a bar somewhere. There was a scene where they were... Wow. And uh, so it had some it had some really edgy stuff in it. Uh, and they began to clean it up and it became more and more saccharine as time went along. But I immediately said I thought this would be something I ought to do and I talked to my agent about it and, and he said if there's anybody in town who can get away with this it's the guy who has a kid with Ursula Andrus you know uh, that's all he was worried about <laughs> like making sure people knew you were straight well yeah I mean I guess that's kind of what he was thinking you know um, though he was not uh, that was an odd thing as well but so you know I signed on to do that movie and I'll never forget the the first rehearsal that we had was in a a big hotel ballroom or something, and uh, 
Michael Onkin. Now, I, I had this, this tradition, by the way, whenever I had a, a leading lady in a movie, I always had them over to my house and I, I cooked them a chicken dinner. It was a thing that I did. I, I liked to cook. And so I'd always have my leading lady over and we'd, we'd talk about the script and I'd cook dinner for him and we'd get to know each other that way. So in this case, I had Michael over to, for dinner um, for, to cook him <laughs> some chicken, chicken. And he came and... Um, and then we had our, our first rehearsal, and, and uh, Michael said, you know, we have to rehearse the kiss. And this is the first time the two men in a big studio movie had ever kissed on screen before, yeah. and it was going to be a big deal. So, uh, And he said, we, we got to rehearse the kiss. And I said, well, Mike, have you ever kissed anybody before? And he goes, of course. And I said, well, you know, and in this movie, if you read the script, you, this is the first time you've ever kissed a man, Right. Don't you want to have that be the experience when they roll the camera, so that it's actually the first time you've ever kissed a man? Because isn't that the, isn't that what we're trying to go for here? I said I don't think we need to rehearse this kiss. I think we can probably do it on the day, you know. And he goes, no, no, we got, you know, we he he had all kinds of anecdotes about Richard Deere and what Richard would do if he was doing this movie and how he would go down into the gay community and become involved. And I said, well, you know what. I'm I'm a method actor, but I'm not quite that method, you know. So uh, let's wait for the day, and we did. We didn't rehearse the kiss, and we waited for the day. And on that day, the entire brass studio brass came over to the set. Sherry Lansing came over, and um, Dan Melnick, who was producing the movie, and like all these other suits and stuff, came over. Sherry Lansing ran the studio at the time. So I said to Michael, I pulled him aside and said, and Michael, I know, I know we haven't rehearsed the kiss and all that, but let's just talk about it for a sec. I said, look, so this is the first time we've ever, you know, you've ever kissed a man. I said, I'm used to it, of course. I was, I was kind of a playboy. I said, but why don't we make this a really kind of romantic, very soft, only slightly open mouth kiss, you know, just kind of brush our lips together a little bit, but let's not nosh at each other, you know, can we just kind of make it romantic? Cause they'll do a close up and it'll be really nice and lovely. And, uh, he goes, yeah, all right, all right, all right. And so they turned the camera over, they rolled the camera and, uh, all these brass are sitting behind. And I think Michael on Keen was up on a stairway or something. And I, I walked into the frame and I was in my stocking feet and he was a little taller than I was and he put his hand behind my neck and came in and just shoved his tongue down my throat. (laughs) Now, you know, (laughs) this is take number one, right? And I'm thinking, I do not want to do take number two. So just be cool, Harry. You know, like, go with it and, like, imagine that everything's cool here, no problem. And and, and I just, uh, you know, all the whole time I'm thinking, just don't do take two, whatever you're doing. So unfortunately, we did do take two. Uh, but when, 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 we, when we finished, we finished uh, the first take, and, and he and I put our, our arms around each other, and we sort of walked off into the bedroom out of the range of the camera. And when I heard cut, I said, I said no tongues like that. <laughs> it feels good. Do it. You don't get any points for playing by the rule. Look, it's not... It's not as if I'm gay. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, you know? I'm in love with Claire. I don't know 
What kind of a life I could have without her? I mean, I love her. I don't want to be without her. I'll get some more scotch. Physician, heal thyself. Hey. Are you sure you want to spoil the mystery? Wow, how gross. Michael Ankeen and Harry Hamlin French kissing. Yeah, right? Disgusting. Or maybe no one wanted to see that. Well, everything I always dreamed of. Yeah. (laughs) Calm down, Seth, for one thing. (laughs) That's how um, sort of uh, in your face the movie was, though. There was uh, kissing and um, intimations of sex. And um, another really interesting thing is that there's a scene in this movie that both caught us off guard. If you watch it, it's there's a version on YouTube. I don't know how much longer it'll be up there, but if you want to watch it. Where Michael Ankeen's character, who's a doctor, um, that's how they meet. Harry Hamlin's character, who's a writer, comes to, um, there's a, a strange bump on his neck. And if you've seen any gay movies, you know, from the 80s on, basically that's leading into the inevitable AIDS diagnosis. Right. But that's not what happens in this scene. No. Hey, Doc? Mm-hmm. As long as I'm here, could you take a look at something over here? Sure. This is something that I saw the other night, uh, sort of swollen up and it hasn't gone away. See that right there? Yep. It's a tumor, isn't it? No, it's not a tumor. A lymph node? An ingrown hair. Are you sure it's not a tumor, Doc? Well, if you'd like, I could call in Dr. Doolittle for a second opinion. An ingrown hair. Pretty amazing in retrospect of what, what was to come in just a couple years after that. And actually, this film, what I kind of liked about it is that it's, it's very, it doesn't have that sort of morality play to it. it. It's not like sex equals death. His character likes to live a kind of free, uh, unencumbered lifestyle, and he has a lot of different partners. And uh, the Michael Onking character ends up being a more traditional kind of guy who goes from the marriage to Kate Jackson. And they don't dismiss Kate Jackson. They actually take their love very seriously. But then he goes on to find another relationship. So they're just two different kinds of gay guys, basically, right. two different lifestyles. And that's what was interesting to me about the film. Yes, and it was very innovative, especially for a studio movie, because, yeah, once AIDS came around, there would be so many movies, you know, even great movies like Philadelphia. But that was the focus. Yeah, that was for, the drama. For the longest was time. This, you know, tragedy and death and just like, you know, the party was over. Right. And I feel like there wasn't even a, mo- a big budget studio movie until like maybe like 95 maybe until like two wong fu or something where it wasn't all just going to be about aids Mm -hmm. so so it was very in and out with kevin klein right that was another one post that but yeah so that was interesting and ahead of its time for this film and as we mentioned before it it didn't shy away from um, depictions of sex but harry hamlin explained that one more explicit scene he wasn't even aware that they were going to shoot it Michael and I had both said, because in the script there was a scene where, you know, after the kiss, then we go in and there's a scene where we're making love, naked, on the bed. Like and the both, title says. Yeah, the name of the movie. Both, <laughs> both Michael and I said, you know, look, we'll do the kiss and you can show us in bed, you know, asleep or hugging each other or whatever. But the actual coital act, we would rather skip and and because uh, <laughs> sure. neither one of us could really picture it to begin with, and then uh, I don't know how they would do that. I don't know. Nineteen eighty-one, twentieth-century Fox. I mean, what are they? So they agreed. They said, "No, okay, no problem. You're good." 
little did we know that that night they went down to West Hollywood, a couple of the writers, and and Arthur didn't go, but a couple of the writers went down, Barry Sandler went down to North, uh, West Hollywood, and they hired a couple of guys who looked a little bit like me and Michael, and they brought them back up, and they paid them each a couple of hundred bucks to get into bed and fuck. And and do it. <laughs> no, go for it. Oh, you can do it that here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, to get into to bed and and screw, you know, and uh, and that's in the movie. And there are several versions of the movie that are that are floating around out there. And I've seen a couple of them. And in one, it's it's from a high angle, uh, looking down on these two guys doing it. And then there's another one from another cut of the film that's over here. Apparently, there aren't many prints of the film left so the last time I saw it they found a print in a vault somewhere they, they did the 35th anniversary or something like that and I, they found a print in a vault and it was not a it was not a version that I'd seen before but you know that was I would say that was a little underhanded of them yeah. because you know we didn't actually do that they they hired body doubles to come up and and do the deed and we had agreed that we didn't want to do that in the movie yeah you'd think so. you'd have an ironclad uh, sex scene or nudity Rider, well, you would, but they, if they use somebody else, but for that too, body doubles, things like that. But I yeah. guess then it was a little more. And then, uh, yeah, it was it was more Wild Wild West back in those days. I love the idea of just sixty-year-old Arthur Hiller, oh, white-haired. It seems like he had white hair as a teenager. If you look at pictures of Arthur Hiller, this is important to no one. But <laughs> I just love him going to find two body doubles and straight filming their boning, especially a straight guy. And he's like, action. And they're like, we'll give you action. Now, according to Harry, the editor of this film was the same editor as The Godfather, Bill Reynolds. And um, while he was editing it, he said, you know, you're going to get nominated for an Academy Award for this. And Harry was excited to hear that and thought yeah. big things were coming. They did some math and figured out that if, uh, you know, the majority of gay people in the United States go see it, they, they're guaranteed to have a, a hit on their hands. The movie came out, and one of my professors from Yale, at when I was at the uh, in the in the drama, uh, I was taking a class from the film school when I was in my senior year, and uh, my professor there, who shall remain nameless at this point, was also a reviewer for the Hollywood Reporter. He had been my professor at like five years before, and I'd known known him in the class. Not intimately, not really, really well, but he saw me every day in the class. We had a few conversations. So the movie comes out, and the review in The Hollywood Reporter just trashes it completely. I mean, just, you know, uh, and... I apologize. <laughs> and, then, and then he says, and to top it all off, they hired a male model to play Bart. And that was my character. Now... I had my Master of Fine Arts degree at that point, my degree in drama from Yale. I was, you know, done a bunch of movies already, but he didn't do enough research, and he just said they hired a male model. He called me a male model, you know, and I, I remember seeing him well, like a year later at a, some kind of function, and, and, I, and I I couldn't go up to him because I would have hit him, and I, and I, but I started to shake because wow. this man, you know, had said this thing in the Hollywood Reporter about, you know, and like, what do you do once that comes out in print and everybody in town reads it and you go, well, you, what do you do with that now? But it, just overall, in terms of the, the way that film was, was received, um, it was too early. It was like 10 years too early, I guess. And 
it completely ended my career. That wow. was the last mm -hmm. studio picture I ever did. The door shut with a resounding smash. Is wow. it true this uh, guy who bought the studio, this Denver oil man, said I can't, we were making some <laughs> faggot movie or something like that? Uh, well, Marvin and I actually became very good friends, Marvin Davis, um, who bought the, the studio. He also owned Aspen Mountain and much other stuff. But he, uh, he had bought 20th Century Fox. And Marvin and I, over the years, uh, and, I, and the Davis family and I became good friends, and I supported a lot of their charities. And uh, I would go to Marvin's house. For, he'd have these big dinner parties at his house. He was a billionaire. And, uh, and he would always stand up uh, with a microphone at the end of the table, and he would always say, oh, that, that Hamlin down there, okay? So uh, Barbara and I were, were invited to see a screening of the very first movie being released by... 20th Century Fox, right after we bought it. And we were really <laughs> excited to see this movie. So uh, Barbara and I go down to this big, big movie theater, just the two of us, and they screen this movie. And, uh, hey, Harry, and you say to me, Danny, you, you know, I just thought I'd remind you that Barbara told me I should sell the studio as soon as we saw the movie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he said, every time I went to the dinner, his dinner parties, he would bring that up. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that was, uh, it was, uh, so I'm very proud of the movie, and not a week goes by when people don't come up to me. I mean, I'm serious about this, in the supermarket, anywhere uh, on the street, uh, and they thank me for doing that movie. So there you go. Every door shut on him because he made this very ahead of its time, uh, ballsy uh, career move. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it was curtains for Harry Hamlin. Until 1987, when he was cast as Michael Kuzak, litigating attorney. I forget if he was a DA or... <laughs> he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. It was it LA was a, law. He wasn't working for the city. He was, he was a private firm. Okay. And um, he became this incredible sex symbol, and he suddenly ended up on the cover of uh, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. He was M number move three. aside, John Legend, Harry Hamlin in the house. He was People's third Sexiest Man Alive. There was Mel Gibson, then somebody else. Mark Harmon. Mark Harmon, and then Harry. Wow. I love that he now sort of takes a backseat to his wife's stardom as a real housewife of Beverly Hills, Lisa Rinna. And uh, he seems to be quite content uh, with as a dad, and his his uh, kids are now old enough to go off and do their own thing. And, and he was on Mad Men. We oh, that's skip true. Skip over that. He got nominated for an Emmy for uh, his performance in Mad Men. Well, thank you, Harry. This was incredible to meet you and and hear these these incredible stories you have of uh, the, the last golden gasps of the Hollywood system. Um, so thank you for stopping by. We really appreciate your time. And I'm sure there's lots of great things coming up for you. As always, thank you for tuning in. We hope you come back next week. So thank you, guys. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We know it's valuable, and uh, we love doing this. We, we hope you love listening to it. And uh, until next time, we'll, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.